a provocative hypothesis is will Britain become a colony? So the the use of data, data sets they're called, to train the AI is the magic. The whole machine learning learn is based on uh, training uh, your, your, your be based on your behavior, uh, training how to deal with you better. The government of Saudi Arabia announced that they are developing something equivalent to ChatGPT in Arabic. And they will train it based on data sets they approve of. So it will be their point of view. Qatar announced the same thing after that. So we have at least two Arab competitors to the American ChatGPT. My fellow Indians and Hindus in particular are oblivious of this. Every activist is out there talking about the same issues for the last 10 years. Those were important issues when the book Breaking India came out, but they really haven't done any new, any new thinking. So I'm trying to get them into, into less think of the future. Those are past and pro present problems. They are serious, but in the future, we're headed towards something even worse. So we need to upgrade our knowledge about AI. We need to upgrade our knowledge about wokeism, and we need to now take on a whole new level of problem. Rajiv, I think the, the most important thing is that the, the work that you've done is highly respected, well-researched, and well understood. And I've not until today really thought about that, that overlap between AI and the, the woke agenda and the potential for, uh, for the two to interact in, in the sort of potentially lethal way that uh, you've described. The warning that AI can, I think you described as a force multiplier for ideology is, is chilling and I think the, the question that I would have is how do we start getting a more a fair and more balanced approach in our universities? I do worry that there is one ideology which is, is being sort of pumped out of our universities and that is shaping the views of a whole generation. So um, in I'd be very, very much like to hear your thoughts about what we could do. But then a prominent Harvard scholar has got, a, has got 100 faculty members who've signed a petition to the president of Harvard that this wokeism must end. So, you know, there is a pushback from within the academic world also. My book, Snakes in the Ganga, is also applicable here because you have snakes in the Thames also, I think. <laughs> some, you, you probably do have some, I'm sure. <clears throat> You're touching on this, but you haven't actually gone further. Wokeism for me is becoming a complete intolerance yes. of alternative ideas. Yes. Um, I think uh, the concept of a Hindu-friendly AI will really give the wokists some trouble, uh, which, <laughs> is, which, is, uh, something about, which is exactly what we, we need to do.
Well, this is a great pleasure to, to welcome Rajiv. We were talking earlier, uh, I think uh, it's something like four, maybe five years since uh, uh, we've had the opportunity of meeting. Uh, but of course, he shares at least one thing with me, uh, and that is he's a physics graduate. Yes. Um, my degree is in physics and maths. So uh, uh, he then went on to become a computer scientist uh, specializing in artificial intelligence, which is very much to the fore right now. Uh, the second thing that he shares with me, the concerns over wokeism um, and how it is impacting uh, the Indian diaspora and Indian civilization. Uh, Rajiv, uh, I think the, the most important thing is that the, the work that you've done is highly respected, well-researched and well-understood. Um, you've, you've produced a litany of, uh, of pieces of literature and guided the community. So a very warm welcome. Um, I'm looking forward to listening to what you've got to say and getting the question and answer from uh, colleagues in the audience. I'd like to introduce uh, uh, Right Honourable Theresa Williams as well, Villiers as well. She's the MP for Chipping Environment, and uh, thank you very much for taking the time out to attend this event this afternoon. Over to you, Rajivji. Thank you. Honourable Bob Blackman and Honourable Theresa Villiers, uh, we've been here together a few years ago, and I'm delighted to be brought back here for another talk. A lot has happened. I'm not looking at it as uh, a speaker on uh, Indian civilization and Hindu civilization per se. Uh, the message is just as important for British people, American people, everyone. I'm going to talk about two major revolutions going on, each so powerful enough to disrupt and shake up the world. And then I'll talk about how they work together. And that could be pretty uh, drastic and we have to be prepared for it. The first is the artificial revolution, AI revolution, the artificial intelligence revolution. I will talk about that. When I started reviving my interest, because as a graduate student, that's what I did. About 10 years ago, I started getting back into it. All my friends used to my writings in, on Indian civilization said, why are, you, why are you writing on all this stuff? What does it have to do? with your core competence. And then when my book came out, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power, three years ago or approximately, you know, many people said, well, you know, it's sort of futuristic and it's all sensational and conspiracy, but now all these things are happening and people are really concerned. So these things do affect civilization, as I will explain. The second major revolution is social justice. A whole new theory of social justice called wokeism is taking over world democracies. It's not taking over China because they have their own idea of social justice. It's not taking over the Arab world because they are producing their own They are producing a social justice thesis for modern times. Qatar and Saudi Arabia both are. And that's very interesting, very important that there should be multiple points of view. But the democracies, starting with United States, India, I think Britain and many others, have now this big uh, new thesis, which I'll talk about that's spreading and disrupting things. So as far as artificial intelligence is concerned, I want to start with the previous industrial revolution, which happened in Britain and then France, as a result of which there, were, there was a huge growth in economy, employment, but it was not even. A lot of people lost jobs and a lot of people got new jobs. A lot of old factories were shut down. 
new industries started. But because it was uneven, certain countries that were wealthy became poor and certain countries that were not so wealthy became rich and hence started the age of colonization. So the East India Company started on, became powerful. It was there already in the year 1600, but it became very powerful because of the industrial revolution. And it gave, it got the, uh, the competitive advantage. So they could make a lot of money that gave power, military expansion, all of that. The, even within a, civil, a given country, the impact was uneven. Certain jobs, certain industries disappeared, new industries came. People who were older and could not upgrade lost their jobs. Younger people took those jobs. So the disruption was definitely there. France joined soon and also became an industrial power and also became a colonial power. The interesting thing is that Britain and France were at war with each other and also taking over colonies in the rest of the world. The reason I mention this is that the artificial intelligence revolution has some parallels. It will create new jobs and it will destroy old jobs, but the impact is going to be uneven. Maybe in Bangalore, there'll be a lot more uh, wealth created and maybe in Bihar and Orissa, the old technology will die. The old factories will die. Similarly, in Britain, you'll have certain industries that will vanish and whole new industries will emerge. New systems of governance, new concepts of new kinds of media, all sorts of industries, medical industry, manufacturing, completely revolutionized. The question is, just as Britain and France use their industrial lead to create a new world order, a colonial world order, it seems reasonable to me that United States and China might do the same right now. So if US and China become the new colonizers while fighting each other directly and also fighting over colonies, what happens to the, what happens to the rest of the world? And a provocative hypothesis is, will Britain become a colony? Could Britain become a colony? Because it's not in the top two industrial powers as far as AI is concerned. And nor is India. And nor are many other countries. So what happens to them? So if we understand this, I think towards the end, I'll propose some ideas on how to, how to move, move forward. So if the, if the uh, parallel of uh, the previous industrial revolution empowering Britain and France is applied right now, and it seems to be a valid par parallel, we have a duopoly again, United States and China competing for AI and competing for the new world order. And hence, they'll be competing for satellite states, client states, colonies, direct, indirect. So the disruption, the disruption caused by AI will be naturally quite massive. And countries, India is not, India has, by the way, the largest, the word army is probably too, uh, too uh, aggressive, but the largest team of AI engineers, along with China, alongside, but the difference is that the AI engineers of India are not working for the India's AI revolution, but for American AI revolution. They are brains that have been rented out. That's a shame. I've been criticizing this for 10 years, that the smartest brains are working for Google and Microsoft and all these kind of companies. So when we hypothesize 
that there could be a new world order, this time something will be a little different because people in India, which if you think of it as another colony in the, in the, in the future, uh, the, it will be the necessary workers for the colonizers. So it's a different kind of situation. And when you ask questions like, could Britain be colonized? I'm not referring to a country being the colonizer, but private companies. And that might seem ridiculous. How could a private company colonize? But remember, the East India Company was a private company. And Google and Facebook and Amazon and Apple, all these guys who have the power of AI. And ChatGPT, by the way, is just the beginning. It's just the tip of the iceberg. Just the tip of the iceberg. So what is, there is nothing ridiculous, in my opinion, to propose this sort of a hypothesis that we could have a return of the, of the East India Company. In fact, that's the title of a chapter in my book on artificial intelligence, Return of the East India Company. And this made waves and a lot of uh, uh, problems in India because that's when Google and Facebook were being welcomed as big investors. And I was saying that this is the East India Company in a new incarnation. So the, 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 the policymakers in India have to decide whether to keep renting brains to foreign uh, you know, powers or whether to use those brains for, our, for their own purpose. This is an important issue. And Britain has to think that as an industrial power in the past, it does have that memory. It does have, it does have the potential to revive that again. And, and I think the priority has not been given in that much into this kind of a, uh, you know, it, it's been considered too futuristic, but actually the future is right now. It's happening very quickly. The most important impact of AI is the one that's a segue to the second revolution. This is AI's ability to hack your brain, hack your mind, your psychology, your emotions, to sell you things, which is how they make their money. All the services are free but they are the richest companies in the world. So how does that happen? Well, that's because they hack your brain and know how to sell you things. If they can sell you things, they can sell you ideas. They can sell you who to vote for, which religion to belong to, who to date, which holiday to go to, all, all kinds of things, all kinds of mental hacking is, is happening. And that is because AI is able to do that. AI is able to use your behavior, what you respond to, what you don't respond to, who you like, who you don't like, where you travel, and figure you out better than any human psychologist. So it's able to know you better than perhaps you know yourself, because you only know what you remember of yourself, and AI never forgets. So the, the use of data, data sets they're called, to train the AI is the magic. The whole machine learning learn is based on uh, training uh, your, you, your based on your behavior, uh, training how to deal with you better. So this means that AI is gamifying you. It's gamifying you. You see, but then the converse is also true. We can gamify the AI because of the way we supply data conditions the AI. So AI is trying to learn from us and use that knowledge to manipulate us psychologically. And, and we could do the same because somebody has to train the AI. The AI learns. So think of a child you send to a certain school. If a child goes to a madrasa or goes to a Catholic convent or goes to a Hindu uh, patshala or, 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 a, or a gurukul or goes to a Maoist training camp or whatever, uh, accordingly, it will shape, be shaped. 
the curriculum, the reading list will shape the child. So think of AI as a child which has to be trained. There is no, it does not have any innate values or knowledge or, or, or you know, it, it, it's based on what you train it on. So chat GPT is trained on things like Wikipedia and New York Times and, you know, things of that sort. So if those are biased, then it's biased. That's really what it is. This means that the technology of AI lends itself as a force multiplier of ideologies. Ideological warfare now has a different, it's in a different league because you can weaponize the AI with your ideology by supplying the kind of data, by supplying the kind of bias. In the last month, the government of Saudi Arabia announced that they are developing something equivalent to ChatGPT in Arabic and they will train it based on data sets they approve of. So it will be their point of view. Qatar announced the same thing after that. So we have at least two Arab competitors to the American chat GPT. China has already been developing this for a long time. So it seems that there are at least three on the world stage. I'm disappointed that despite 10 years of warnings to the Indian uh, people, uh, nobody there has started such a program. In fact, on the, uh, uh, on, on the other hand, the disappointing thing is that the uh, one group after another have announced in India that they'll take, they'll adopt ChatGPT or the British or the Google equivalent uh, or somebody else's equivalent as the platform and enrich it further, which means we'll supply data so it'll be kind to us. But in the process of supplying data, it's actually, we are actually training it how to deal with us. You see? So it's a double-edged sword. Using somebody else's platform makes that platform even more powerful. And it's a kind of short-sighted as compared to developing our own. So now I'll talk about the second revolution. If AI can be gamified ideologically, the question is which ideology? <clears throat> and this is where I want to talk about wokeism. Wokeism has entered, has started in the United States and spread everywhere, everywhere that is prefer mostly English-speaking democracies because it's easy to spread. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of India has openly announced that he's a wokist. He's quoting from the Harvard wokists. He's quoting from critical race theory. He's not talking about it. He's talking about gender fluidity and all, all kind of stuff that, you know, is, is wokeism. So what is wokeism? I'll just tell you in a little bit, in, 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 in a brief way. So think of Marxism which says that the world consists of oppressors and oppressed, but they, that was only economic. It was not about race. It was not about religion. It was not about gender. It was only economic. Then in the World War II, there came a Frankfurt School of Marxism to explain the rise of Nazism because they, they could not explain why uh, the, uh, in the depression in Germany, why didn't they revolt and have a, Marx, a communist revolution the way they did in Russia. And the answer was that there is something else called cultural Marxism, where the haves and have-nots and the means of production that give power is cultural production. So they said that the Nazis were very good at cultural production of the greatness of Nazi, their Germans and all that. And they hyped up this superiority complex of Germany. And people were so uh, enthralled that they forgot their economic misery. So the, the economic revolution was 
uh, you know, withheld, it, it kind of didn't happen, it was forestalled, and they were able to uh, create power. That was the, let's say, Marxism 2.0. But then a very well-known, a very powerful, influential man called Herbert Marcuse, who was part of this revolution, he went to the United States in Berkeley, and he, under, he, he tried to bring Marxism, but Americans were so capitalistic, they didn't want to buy into this. But he discovered that race is a, is a schism that could be used. So he came up with another kind of Marxism called critical race theory. It was originally, he didn't use that term, but originally at Harvard, they came up with the term critical legal theory, that the legal system consists of whites who've created the system and blacks who are being oppressed. And then it was expanded to critical race theory, which says all social structures, right from the constitution to all the way the laws are written and the way the business works is unfair because it was created by certain oppressors and their job was to create, to oppress other people. And then soon a certain religious minority in the United States joined in and said, we too are oppressed by the Judaic Christians. And so they got, they got into an alliance with the, with the left. And then the LGBTQ said, we too are oppressed. So th this is like a coalition of all the people who have grievances. So there's a field called grievance studies. Grievance studies is the name of the field. And there are weird categories of grievances. grievances. One of them is called fat studies, where they say that uh, we, the fat people, uh, are being prejudiced against by thin people. And there's nothing wrong with being fat. There's no, this whole business about medical problem is not valid scientifically. It's just a prejudice against us. So now there is a whole another grievance group wanting to join. So in this, the Dalits of India were invited at Harvard to create what is now called critical Dalit studies. Critical Dalit studies says that the, the Dalits are the blacks of India and the non-Dalits are the whites of India. So people like me in the United States are called white adjacent, white adjacent, which, which that's the official term, which means you're not white, but you are adjacent to the whites. You're enjoying the same privileges. You are successful in, in, in getting into the structures that whites created. And by enjoying those structures, you are part of the problem. So if you, what they had to explain was that the Indian American community is the highest per capita in the United States. So if the theory was right that all structures are abusive and there's no way that non-whites can get ahead, then the, the example of Indians had to be explained. So they said, well, they are white adjacent. And, and by saying that, they think that they solve the problem. So this is the critical race theory. Its, its results are as follows. One, it's anti-meritocracy, which means that it's not equality, but equity. And when you are, when somebody tells you that they are working in DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, you must understand equity is not equality. And let me explain. Equality means that everybody is treated equally and you have an equal chance of success. And based on merit, somebody will win and somebody will not. But equity says we want equal outcome. So if there are too many Indians on merit getting into Harvard, we want to official, artificially limit that. And we want to have other people come up and bring Indians down because they have an unfair advantage. Unfair advantage means that they're better at math. If you're better at math, it's an unfair advantage and you are part of the oppressor. And I, who does not have that uh, math skill, feel oppressed because in class you keep, you keep on answering correctly and I don't know how to answer. I feel oppressed.
So my counter argument which I've given to some of these audiences is that on the basketball court, being a short guy, I feel oppressed by the blacks because, <laughs> because they have an unfair advantage. And, and therefore, we should have a certain number of bonus points for short people. And we should change the rules of the game. You see, when you give them their logic back, they cannot handle it. Which takes you to the second issue. The second issue is censorship. Free speech is threatened. <coughs> this is called cancel culture. And the logic is that the oppressor should not be allowed to speak because then the narrative will never change. They have an unfair advantage in the past. And if they go on having the right to speak equally, then, you know, they'll continue dominating. So we have to censor them and have a contrarian. We have to have a kind of an anti-narrative and give the anti-narrative preference, preferential treatment. So the moment somebody speaks, thank you. The moment somebody speaks, if he's part of the oppressor community, then you got to silence him. So this is, this is pretty weird stuff. Uh, this uh, critical race theory, critical caste theory, wokeism, anti-meritocracy, anti-free speech, gender fluidity. Now you might wonder why, what does gender fluidity have to do with this kind of a revolt against all these structures? It has to do with the following. Family structure is a problem by, according to wokeism because family structure is the, is the mechanism by which values are passed on from generation to generation. So there is this Harvard professor who, who specializes in teaching Indians, Indian students there, that you should revolt against your families and against family values and family structures because they are making you the next generation of oppressors. The only way you can get freedom from being an oppressor is to get out of the family structure. So, so this whole fl gender fluidity, etc., etc., is to dismantle family structures. Now, if you if you look at this woke social justice as a revolution, as a worldwide revolution, at least it's happening to uh, in democratic countries, and then you look at the AI. So, if the people who control AI mm. tend to be wokeists. Then the wokeism, you have an AI system running the world, which is a certain idea, ideology of social justice. And that's what's currently happening. Because if I post something, it's immediately flagged, not by a human censor, but by an algorithm. It says a violation of, uh, uh, you know, community standards. But then you ask, you know, and they say, well, sir, we don't know the algorithm decided. I don't know. Their own employees will say that they don't really know uh, how the algorithm came up with this, but the algorithm did. So these algorithms are very biased. And these algorithms, there's a dictatorship of algorithms, it seems like. Somebody has trained these algorithms. So I have, uh, we've done many experiments with uh, ChatGPT. We've done many experiments with, with uh, other, uh, you know, social media where we post something and it's flagged. Uh, we post the exact same thing using the, to, using the equivalents from another religion. So we use the deities of another religion, we use the whatever of another religion that are similar, and it goes through. So there is clearly bias. There is, there is Hindu phobia built into, the, into these algorithms. Uh, it, the, the paradox is the rich people who control the AI, the multi-billionaires worth hundreds of billions and so on, they are capitalists. And wokeism wants to dismantle capitalism. So the question is, why would, why would the richest capitalists want to adopt an ideology which is actually shooting themselves in the foot? And that's a paradox I have struggled with for a while and I have a very clear thesis. The wokest 
ideology is a way to dismantle the current structure because that's what it tries to do. And the capitalists at the, at the top of the pyramid of AI want to create a new structure using AI as a sort of a digital caste system, I've called it, a digital caste system of haves and have-nots, of people who have more privileges. I have a certain level of privilege. Somebody else who's compliant with the AI will be, have more privileges. Somebody else who's defying will be left, less privileges. You may be deplatformed, you may be thrown out. Uh, this hierarchy of privileges is going to be controlled by AI, AI's value system. Who gets interest rates, this interest rate or that interest rate? Who gets more banking privileges? There's already something called ESG, which is an indexing system where certain values have been turned into an index. Environment, social justice, governance, very, very popular. There's something called diversity, equity, uh, inclusion. There's also an index of that. Now there's a new index of religious freedom that has entered the corporate world. So these indexes are, is, have in them embedded values. And these are, uh, these uh, are, allow the AI algorithm to evaluate everybody, rate them along some index. And that determines whether you get funding, what kind of interest rate you'd get, uh, what kind, how, what access you have, what access you don't have. So stratifying the word, world in a hierarchy using these indexes is a way that this whole algorithmic system and woke system is shaping the world. So this is a large subject. And the, and the reason I, I have started talking about it is that I feel that uh, my fellow Indians and Hindus in particular are oblivious of this. Every activist is out there talking about the same issues for the last 10 years. Those are important issues when the book Breaking India came out, but they really haven't done any new, any new thinking. So I'm trying to get them into, into less think of the future. Those are past and pro present problems. They are serious. But in the future, we're headed towards something even worse. So we need to upgrade our knowledge about AI. We need to upgrade our knowledge about wokeism. And we need to now take on a whole new level of problem. Uh, this is this is the basically a summary of what I wanted to say. And I would love to uh, encourage more conversation, more discussions, and so on. Thank you very much for listening. Wow. Well, thank you, Rajiv, for that uh, inspiring uh, uh, talk about the threats, which I think uh, <clears throat> I would concur uh, with your thesis uh, and indeed the, the, the risks that uh, we're all undertaking right now. Well, that was, that was fascinating. It really was, and, and frankly, a, a little bit terrifying as well. <laughs> um, thank you so much for that. I mean, it, it's, it's always good to have a reminder of India's phenomenal contribution to mathematics and science. I, I always sort of find it hard to sort of believe that there once was a world which didn't have zero and how, how anything got done at all before those incredible Indian mathematicians in around the 5th and 6th century invented zero. I, I don't know because um, the whole of our our science and frankly the whole of our civilization and our economy is based on the decimal system without uh, which wouldn't exist uh, without that uh, invention of the concept of zero and it is also I think a, a reminder here in Rajiv's talk that India is is a phenomenal superpower in science and technology um, but I do take your point about the idea that a lot of that is is currently focused on the United States, and I think that's an important debate to have as to you know how that huge 
capacity with India is, is used and deployed and what is the best, the best way to do that. Um, of course, the debate about AI is, is massively current and I'd not until today really thought about that, that overlap between AI and the, the woke agenda and the potential for, uh, for the two to interact in, in the sort of potentially lethal way that uh, you've described. Um, and I, I, I share the Prime Minister's view that we, we absolutely have to start thinking about how we manage these risks. You know, the, the, obviously the problem is that we don't know what the consequences of AI will be, so it's quite difficult to create a regulatory structure, but we absolutely have to try. And I feel that one of the aspects of that is some kind of transparency obligation. So if, uh, if AI is making stuff up, then you know, somewhere at the bottom it should be, this is, this is made up by such and such AI system, but I appreciate that it's going to be phenomenally complex to put something like that in place and even more complex to get the global agreement we need on it. Um, but certainly the, the warning that AI can, I think you described as a force multiplier for ideology is, is chilling. And I think the, the question that I would have is, how do we start getting a more, a fairer, more balanced approach in our universities. I do worry that there is one ideology which is, is being sort of pumped out of our universities and that is shaping the views of a whole generation. So um, in, I'd be very, very much like to hear your thoughts about what we could do on that, both, both in relation to universities here and in other parts of the world. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very important point. Uh, th this started in the United States many years ago. It wasn't taken very seriously. And th this cancer of, uh, or, you know, preventing free speech. So students in my generation who considered themselves to be liberal uh, were taught how to think, not what to think. Yeah. And, and it, it was not like somebody said, this is the right, this is the true, this is true and this is false. But we were taught, you know, how you figure it out for yourself. And how do you analyze and listen to all points of view and so on. And that was considered the hallmark of being a, a good thinker. And academics meant doing that. But now it's like uh, there's cancel culture. I've experienced it for decades. And now there's a term for it. So many people are experiencing it. Uh, I was at King's College a few days ago. Had a wonderful uh, encounter, a wonderful engagement with some brilliant students. I gave a talk and we had nice interaction. But the interesting thing is, before I spoke... Someone whispered in my ear that, you know, you know, we just want you to know that there was an attempt to cancel your talk. And so you should be very careful of what you say. So I said, well, I don't understand. I mean, I'll say what I want to say and then people can disagree. But then somebody told me that there's a, the good news is that there's a professor, Kshitij Kapoor, who is the principal. And he heard both sides and he said the talk must go on because of free speech. So that's a good idea. So, you know, we need more people like that. I mean, we, we, we need to, uh, whether, if the interesting thing is that in the United States, whether it's a private university like Harvard, which can say, well, we don't care about government, or whether it's a government universities, this wokeism is there. And the, the groundswell of uh, populism is so powerful. Uh, people who, uh, people who are liberals, 
uh, have changed from liberalism to illiberalism because wokeism is illiberal. So, you know, people have to understand that the that uh, 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 Martin Luther King Jr., civil rights guy, he was not a wokeist. He wanted equality, not equity. He said it very clearly. He said, based on merit, whether you're black, brown, white, whoever you are, based on merit, you should get ahead. He just didn't want a prejudice against blacks. He didn't want a prejudice against whites either. And similarly, Barack Obama, many of his statements were like that. But, you know, in, in recent years, this thing has suddenly changed. And, and uh, uh, so now there's a pushback. A hundred, uh, I gave a, I introduced my, uh, launched my book, Snakes in the Ganga, which is about all this uh, at Harvard and among other places. And it was well received because one faculty member wanted to champion it. So in the faculty club of all places, we launched it. It was a very big success. Um, of course, the majority of the faculty kind of boycotted it. Uh, but then a prominent Harvard scholar, has got a has got 100 faculty members who've signed a petition to the uh, president of Harvard that this wokeism must end. So you know there is a pushback from within the academic world also. And then there are people who are uh, from the right, from the conservative side in the U.S. who are coming up with a lot of money to start rival universities where they'll teach people how to think the old-fashioned way, logical. And, you know, analytical. So the, I think there is a, now going to be a pushback and I haven't seen this pushback in India. I haven't seen that. And I don't know about Britain. My book Snakes in the Ganga is also applicable here because you have snakes in the Thames also. I think. <laughs> some, you, you probably do have some, I'm sure. Um, so, uh, but I, my focus was that Harvard is sort of the nest where they're training a whole lot of Indians. They bring them from the extreme left. And they give all this indoctrination and they send them back as journalists and politicians and people in the corporate world and all that. So that's kind of uh, uh, what I'm trying to do. And the Indian billionaires are funding this. This is strange. The Indian billionaires have set up these chairs named after them at Harvard where they are teaching all this kind of stuff. And either they don't know, but that's a shame, or they are kind of uh, part of the problem because maybe they'll get their kids to Harvard or maybe they'll be part of some committee or something prestigious and this is you know, good for their business or something. But we are putting them on the spot. We have named names of such billionaires and given lots of data. So I think there's some pushback. Uh, th there is a kind of backpedaling going on. When you, when you expose a problem, then some of the people, it begins to unravel a little bit and some of the people don't want to be associated with the problem because they're double-faced. On the one hand, in India, they're very patriotic and they're making a lot of money through the free enterprise system. And then they are uh, promoting something in Harvard, which is sort of under, uh, undercutting all this. So this double-facedness is being exposed. So those are some of the things that I can think of doing. But, you know, ultimately, the winner will be China. Because they are not doing any of this. They are, they, and, and one thing I should point out, TikTok, somebody did, did an analysis of TikTok content in English versus Mandarin. In Mandarin, you don't have silly stuff. Uh, you have science, uh, you have about uh, development, uh, you know, you have those kind of things, serious discussions, philosophy, history, Chinese history. So they're teaching knowledge and they're not sort of teaching trivia stuff, but they export all this. Uh, stuff to other people. And China is uh, anti-wokist at home and pro-woke export 
as a <laughs> as a strategy. Thank you. you know, I, first of all, you know, it's a mind-blowing uh, discussion we are having, and Rajivji, you have really given us so much to think about, which we never appreciated and never realized what is going on around us. And thank you for your in-depth study. And I think you spent a lot of time making understanding this subject. So we're grateful for your contribution. But my my intake is that you know, not everything is bad. Now artificial intelligence is helping us yes. to listen to John Lennon again. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so therefore, if you use it to the right purpose, it could be good thing. But I also have a lot of faith in human uh, endeavors, you know, humanity, that, you know, we were frightened of the time when the computers came. It'll be the end of working people. It'll be the end of this. Automation came. But people moved on to better uh, quality jobs, and, you know, rather than doing the same repetitive. So, in fact, the technology improved the lives and condition of billions of people. Otherwise, who would have wasted their life? doing all those mundane tasks day in, day out, day in. And they could now, they can now enjoy uh, their life. Coming back to China, which we have, should have known, because when you do not share each other's values, you have to be wary where you take, your friendship is taking you. You know, if, I, if I'm not a gambler and you're a gambler and, uh, and I want to be your friend, then I should understand the consequences you know, what will happen if I'm befriend alcoholic? But at the same time, we knew China's philosophy right from the beginning, where we opted for cheap, cheap Chinese import. We created that monster. China could never be what it is today had we not invested and given money for our lust for cheap Chinese product. But anyway, nothing is free. Now China has become a very powerful adversary of the free world. Because you have just have to look at this, how they treat their old citizen, how they're going to treat you if they get, get into the power. But the American system I prefer because it is based on f human freedom, free enterprise, you know, allowing you to develop your skill, develop your abilities to the full. I mean, I'm sitting in front of you, all of you, with my background, no father, no elite education, no family wealth. Nothing. And on top of that, I was an immigrant 52 years ago in this country. Such a hostile place to be. But because of the Indian values, we stood the test of time. And if you look at the Indian history, 2000 years ago, don't go further than 2000. And then you compare that history with America, China, United Kingdom, Germany. Where were these people 2000 years ago? You will be shocked. But the Indians were miles, miles ahead of them. But they were, they were lacking in one thing. They were not united. They were all small kingdom, working for their own interest, helping the invaders or the other people to score own goals, which we did for a thousand years. But now the India is totally different. It is going to be a very positive force for the world. Indians are already contributing enormous amount throughout the globe. In fact, if I say the modern world is being shaped by Indian, I will not be exaggerating. 
doctors, engineers, scientists, teachers, businessmen, you know, IT expert, you know, doc, you know, you name it. So India is a force for good. India has no intention of conquering people, nor going and no, no, because we are a totally different civilization. We believe in Vasudeva Kutumgam. The world is a village. We have to live with people. The amount of nationality, the amount of culture, the religion, and uh, you know, languages survive side by side in India is probably the only country in the world. So we, I take <laughs> Rajiv's point that we have to be mindful if it, this kind of uh, knowledge goes into the wrong hand, as the power went to the wrong hand of Hitler, uh, what he did to so many innocent people. So therefore we have to be, you know, there is a, I will always use an Indian old proverb, lock your door and don't call anyone a thief. So therefore we must make sure that we are on the guard, we are on the alert, and, uh, and it's exciting that we share values with the United Kingdom, we are both secular, democratic country, rule of law at the heart of governance. Human freedom is number one priority. And therefore, we don't have to watch each other's back. We will complement each other. We complement. Americans have realized. Americans had backed another country and then paid a very heavy price. And now they're coming back to, you know, I was just shocked that they were offering India to join NATO, which India refused which is a very good thing to do. So that just shows that India will be a beacon of light, beacon of hope, because we are a product of secular democratic country where we are taught to use merit, not race, religion, or any philosophy like Chinese. Uh, so we are a liberated community. We will be adding value wherever we go. And uh, so I'm here now in front of you, uh, the testament of the Indian values, which resulted in honor from the Queen on eight occasions, six times for business, twice for community service, competing with the best in Britain. Yes, so that just shows that we are a, a positive force and uh, I think we will, in our hand, AI will be in good hands. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Ranger, as, as always, very articulate. Should I say something? Yes, of course. So, so this is very nice. I fully like this very positive, uh, you know, view. Uh, it is all true. Uh, and Vasudeva uh, Kutumukam, the world is a family, is true. But, you know, the family includes all sorts of people, includes includes snakes also. Yes. yes and yes. and uh, uh, not every member of the family is, uh, is, you know, good. In fact, in our own history, uh, we have the churning of the ocean with the devas and asuras uh, on opposite camps. In Mahabharat, they are cousins at war. So, you see, the family can have all kind of people and we have to be vigilant uh, and, and understand who's who. So, it's not that... Uh, 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 we, we, we need to hate them, but we need to be cognizant of their ways and pr protect ourselves. The point about AI being that AI is, uh, who will own it? Uh, as, as, uh, Teresa said, the, uh, you know, the, the thing is, it's a, it's a force multiplier. Now the, it's ideological warfare. So the question is, who will own it? Now, um, the ownership right now is concentrated in the hands of a very small number of people. And they, they, they set the dial of what to, which way, you know, ideologically. And they set those parameters. And then from there, everything follows. 
a huge amount of uh, knowledge is being gobbled in and trained and algorithms created every second updated. Uh, the point is that you and I don't have access to the, to the, the we don't, Bob mentioned transparency is needed. Uh, but I think transparency is very difficult to get from their point of view. They've been asked by the US Congress and they've said it's very difficult. If they uh, take a certain position on me based on some algorithm, uh, I should have a right to say, well, how did you get come to this conclusion? I mean, yeah. and they are saying it's too complicated. I don't know. And to some extent, they're right. But to some extent, they don't want to share their source code because then they're giving away their intellectual property. So that is their secret too, that how, how are they coming about? I, it's not going to be an easy thing. And, um, uh, but you need, you need to put some liability if an AI has committed some offense, which would be an offense for a human being, then that offense applies to the owners of that AI. Because you cannot say that my car had an accident, I had nothing to do with it. You cannot. If the autonomous car has an accident, the question will be, is it the person sitting there or is it going to be Tesla? Uh, who, whose liability is it? Because who, who came up with this driver? Who is the driver? Is the driver this fellow sitting there or is the driver this algorithm being controlled for somewhere else? So there are new issues that we have to come to terms with. And there are issues of bias. Uh, the data is being trained on, uh, on the, the algorithms are being trained on data which show that certain communities are superior, some are inferior, some are criminals, some are whatever. And therefore, this stereotyping becomes very standard part of the algorithm. And no, there's no human being doing a bad, something bad or immoral consciously. But this is just unconscious. There is this, uh, it's called ambient AI, which means that the AI is everywhere. And it's not like this, it's called AI per se, but it's just everywhere. So this is why, despite good intentions, uh, it's not going to be an easy thing to actually control all this. May I just say one quick thing? One, one, one quick thing. It is going to become cheaper and cheaper and cheaper for people to get into AI. When we started with computer, it was the handful of people had the computer. And look, my kids, my grandchildren have computer at the age of six. Eh? So the technology gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And on the other hand, there are always checks and balances in place. You cannot produce a car or an electric heater or any washing machine which is going to cause you harm because they will shut down that factory or company. And the beauty with intellectual property is nobody can own it. Knowledge, nobody can own knowledge. So therefore, where, where I share your concern, I'm also very optimistic that uh, there are other people who will be acting as a counterweight, you know, like our civil liberties are preserved by Teresa and Bob, in member, uh, they're both member of parliament uh, in the House of Commons. They protect our civil liberty day in, day out. And similarly, other people who are expert in AI will also uh, protect our interest uh, uh, through legislation. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. Can I just one thing I want to, <clears throat> Ed, you're touching on this, but you haven't actually gone further. Wokeism for me, is becoming a complete intolerance yes. of alternative ideas. Yes. And I, I correlate this with also what you were saying about breaking up the family. Mm. Uh, because we have fought for many years now to end the gap, the gender pay gap. You'll break the glass ceiling for women mm. to be able to get into top roles and top jobs. And it seems to me that hand in hand with this wokeism is this view of if you display a certain characteristic, that's a male characteristic. If you display a certain characteristic, 
That's a female characteristic. Therefore, putting all these things together, you are a female in a male body, yes, or yes. a male in a female body, which means we differentiate, differentiate between sex instead of saying, actually, whether you're male or female is irrelevant. It's about your ability to take on a role, take on a position, and there should not be an impediment to achieving the optimum your capability. But what worries me about this wokeism now is that's forcing people to say, ah, well, if I want to get on in life, I've really got to be a man. Yes. Uh, and actually, you know, if I'm a female, I, I, I can't succeed. Right. Which seems to be, once again, going back to the oppression of women that we've come out of. Yes. Now, absolutely. I don't know if you've got particular views on this. Absolutely. This is absolutely true. Uh, in fact, feminists from the liberal left feminists are very upset at wokeism because they work very hard to bring women up, as you said, to bring women up. And now the concept of who is a woman is being challenged. Uh, what what's the definition? Is there such a thing as a woman is being challenged? So now there are there is a there is a trans man who became a woman who's become a swimming champion, mm -hmm. and so uh, women are very upset because you know then the whole idea of women's sports you might as well not have women's sports because anybody can just become anything and get in anywhere. So this is this is bringing the whole uh, women's empowerment down and that that i think is a is a flaw the other problem i have is that uh, you know until you are 18 you can't don't have rights to vote and things like that but uh, as a minor you can change your sex and your teacher can tell you that you know you really are a male in a female body or vice versa and don't even tell your parents because they shouldn't know so there are all these lawsuits in the united states where school districts are teaching this sort of thing uh, uh, right from kindergarten onwards and facilitating these drugs to you know hormones or whatever to change the person's body uh, and this is being allowed as a sort of a social justice so this social justice problem has so many issues with it from family to uh, you know people like me being called a white adjacent and therefore i'm an oppressor and therefore my kids will have a limited quota of getting into a college uh, you know and uh, uh, scientific journals, Scientific American, one of the most reputable scientific journals in the world, has a policy that when you submit a paper, they will also, one of the criteria will, previously it used to be scientific merit, and that's it. It doesn't matter who did it and so on. But now one of the criteria will be, what is its impact on the social justice movement? And so, you know, people are, uh, I have a friend who's in a Ivy League, one of the very prestigious physics departments in, in the United States. And he chose to leave and took a chair in the UK where he says that same stigma of wokeism is not as much so far. But then he, when you talk to him, he says, well, it's probably coming here too. Uh, so this is, this is what's happening. And, you know, the result of this is there are more patents in AI being filed in China now than in the United States. Uh, some of the Chinese universities have more papers that are being referenced all over the place in, in, in terms of scientific merit than Stanford or MIT. Uh, so China is winning because they are becoming the meritocracy. And uh, Americans are sort of, the, the one thing that made America great was uh, innovation. Because America innovated one industry after another. Not one company, but one whole industry after another for the last hundred plus years. And this, this cannot, will not continue 
beyond whatever is in the pipeline. There are enough good things in the pipeline to last for a decade or so. But beyond that, the true innovation is not going to be at the same rate as it used to be because of this wokeism. So I consider that any a person who is uh, who understands the nature of global dynamics and how countries need to compete uh, should fight this wokeism. Any person who's got family values should fight this wokeism. Any individual who is self-made on meritocracy should fight this wokeism. Uh, basic common sense uh, should fight this wokeism. Your name? Uh, I was just wondering, uh, you say that uh, there is a moment in the academia mostly, uh, but in the general masses in any particular country, for example in India or UK, so how do we mobilize these forces, the masses, the general people, to, to counteract this movement that has already started? So that's a, that's a very good question. How can the masses counter wokeism, which is in certain institutions. You know, in a democracy, you vote. So you should vote the anti-wokeist out. I mean, that's what I think, you know. So, uh, but you know, you see what has happened is this, the, a weakness of democracies is that since majorities have, majority has power, if a large number of people have been convinced that they belong to some, some group that has grievances, some victim group. This is all sort of like, uh, you know, victims galore. Sort of, it's, uh, you know, if you get to be a victim uh, and you can get enough people to lobby and you become a victim and then you go to the government in the United States, certainly, and you are classified as a protected class. There, there is a category, legal category called protected class. So when you become a protected class, then you, certain laws are in your favor and any discrimination against you is considered big violation and whatnot, and you get the benefit of doubt in some ways, which is sort of a, a recipe for disaster because more and more people want to claim to be a victim of something. And this is, this is, and therefore being a democracy, we've created this, this thing is out of the box now. This genie is out of the bottle. So how do you put it back? Uh, you, the, the, you get resistance from a large number of masses who feel uh, differently than you and I, because they feel that they belong to some kind of a victim class and this is the way ahead. So when you're optimizing the, when you're optimizing for a particular identity or your particular community at the expense of the nation and society, it's a, it's a, it's re recipe for disaster because short term you may get ahead, but long term everybody will lose. This is the problem. So what you need is education. You need to educate people about the dangers of wokeism. This, this is a huge education process that, you know, the, the, all kind of people have to get involved in, in doing. Where does faith fit into the use of this AI technology? Because what we've seen over the last two, three, four thousand years, faith has always been the core of power and excellence. So I, I, I'm actually, this is chapter either four or five of my book, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power. And that chapter deals with uh, being, which is faith tells you, being, versus algorithm, which is the AI. And uh, uh, this clash between the two, the tension between the two. Uh, so I'm happy to talk about it. In fact, it's a large, it's a large subject and I'm writing a book on just this subject of uh, 
the faith movement uh, has championed the you know all kind of techniques for raising consciousness there's a whole consciousness movement meditation to raise your consciousness and so on so we as individuals raise our consciousness and we collectively raise our consciousness as a human species uh, but then the raising of the consciousness to get ahead is not through grafts in your brain not through electronics not through gimmicks not through you know goggles all these new kind of gadgets which takes you outside yourself the raising of consciousness is an inward process the whole meditative process is an inward process faith is like that uh, competing against this consciousness movement is this very recent ai ai and all the implants that you know elon musk is going to put in you and many other people many other people put in you and these these uh, these uh, implants will give you joy and, or happiness and give you all kind of exalted experiences uh, maybe you have a trip to somewhere you know in your mind sort of like drugs all kind of uh, manipulation of your psychology so the two will compete in the sense i'm being very pragmatic the two will compete in the sense that many of us from the old school want to uh, elevate our consciousness and that's the faith based approach and there are many others who will say you know i can just buy this thing and i'll be fine i i it's like you know i can push a button and i'm uh, i'm in a state of meditative high you know i reached my transcendence or at least i'll feel that way this is going to happen this will be a challenge for the faith community and i have tried but not so far succeeded in convincing the faith leaders of our tradition to take this matter seriously because they haven't taken it seriously but there are i'm happy to say uh, with among jews and christians in the united states there is a large movement of faith and ai and i am i'm participating with them because i have a we can talk we can discuss the common issues i haven't seen a faith and ai among the hindus yet i'm trying to create that there are many uh, faith and ai ethics and ai morality and ai groups that are uh, getting into this the, unfortunately what happens is the moment you float an ai and ethics group google comes in and invests in it and they put their people in it and then the agenda changes this is what's happening so we are trying to create some sort of a space for ai and faith which is truly without big brother type investments coming in that's what i think is the, we need to do more gentlemen at the back it was actually um, you were saying that um, it, the, the whole center of ai is basically in the in the us uh, it, uh, most of it is happening in the us the big ones and within the us i believe that's mostly silicon valley that's that's something where you have a lot of contacts and 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 people you know and there's big concentration of indians there and hindus do you have do you do you know people who who are who realize and wake up and say you know what this is going against my country where i was born my roots i'm going to see if i can change it within do you see any 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 movement there great question so to the extent that ai is american and it's not only american china is there too and to the extent it's silicon valley corporate structures even that's not true because the pentagon the military is also big in ai investing in ai uh, but to a large large share of this ai is in silicon valley and there are a lot of indians there and the question is that aren't we uh, have i come across people whose patriotism and altruism uh, supersedes their self interest and i'm very sad, sad to tell you that has not been the case uh, more specifically uh, the iits which you know are india's prestigious elite uh, technology institutions that are cranking out all these people 
the Sundar Pichais of uh, Google and, uh, you know, all these kind of people who are running big tech uh, products of that. Uh, so IITs have been attacked at Harvard. Uh, a professor has written a book that it, this meritocracy of IIT uh, violates woke. And so wokeism versus IIT has become a big topic. And this is a huge section in my book, uh, Snakes in the Ganga, how IITs have been attacked. And I then wrote a separate book called The Battle for IITs, a 100-page book which summarizes what the arguments are against IIT, the lawsuits in the United States saying that these IITs are elitists and they are white adjacent and they are oppressing other people. All of that has happened. But I, I was disappointed that while I got verbal support and private support from all these IITians who are doing so well, publicly they didn't want to stick their neck out because they have vested interest. Somebody who's chairman of Google is not going to come in. We had, uh, we had meetings to help a man who got sued uh, because, uh, because of no fault of his own, because the wokeists said that you are white adjacent. And uh, we couldn't get Sundar Pichai or any of these guys, the top people, to even come and attend a meeting because they just didn't want to uh, compromise what, what's good for their career. So this is a sad state of affairs. Theoretically, yes, they should all be part of us. When they go to India, they get awards and they get celebrated. We're so proud of them. They wear Indian clothes and eat Indian food and speak the language. And we think, wow, this guy is one of us. But actually, his own vested interest comes Thanks first. Thanks so much, Rajinji. Fearless as always. Um, large language models depend upon vast amount of data, and you've got a vast amount of data about this subject. So I'm going to pose a question to you as you being the chat GPT of this particular space. Bearing in mind that parliamentarians, leaders of these parties in this country, have been unable to define what a woman is, and come on record saying this is a woman, this is not a woman, bearing in mind that we have politicians who can't understand that it's inappropriate to receive £500,000 from the Chinese government. The question is simply this, the population, the democratic population, do you feel that they have justifiable confidence and comfort that the leaders can resolve this problem? Well, you see, can the, are the leaders so corrupt? The question is a good one. Are the leaders so corrupt, uh, or some of them, such that, you know, the, the very people who are supposed to make the legislation and regulations are all, already sold out. I think to some extent that is true, to, because I think the Googles of the world, and I don't pick on just Google, I think all of them, uh, World Economic Forum, we didn't mention, but the World Economic Forum is a big character in this whole thing. It's a giant. It's the product of, uh, uh, you know, Harvard Kennedy School and this uh, Klaus Schwab is unaccountable. Nobody elects them. No, they don't, they're not transparent on where their money comes from and what they do with it. They're not supposed, they're not ob obligated to do anything. So there's no financial disclosure of any sort. But they are really powerful in setting these agendas. And some of their agendas are quite scary. Like they think there should be a world without private property. Without private, everybody should be renting. And so Elon Musk says that you should also be renting these implants, which means that as you improve your body, you enhance your pancreas and your liver and your heart and your eyes with implants, you will have a rented body. You will be part of the, uh, you will have a, uh, one of these uh, rental programs like you rent Microsoft. That, that sort of thing. So this is, so you know, we're headed towards in a, in a way that uh, uh, some government people in certain countries uh, who have been wokeized, the, I would say the liberal left has been wokeized, and some multilateral 
organizations like WHO and uh, you know also uh, and and certainly World Economic Forum are far along this path. And so therefore, uh, you know, while it's unpopular for a guy like me to stand up and <laughs> stick my neck out, I have done that because I think people have to do that. Uh, there are all these uh, people who are from Hindu Dharma or from a particular faith, but they are breakaways and they're fighting against it. And out of uh, ignorance or out of some vested interest, they're fighting against it. How do you bring them back? Uh, so, you know, AI can be like, like this gentleman to my left said, uh, it, it can also be a solution. So I'll tell you, AI can be a solution in this case. If we use AI because the kids love it and we can produce games and entertainment with these messages, the messages we want, Instead of instead of reacting and revolting against the messages that other people have done, we could have our own AI platform. And in fact, I have a project I'm not discussing too much publicly because it's still in the early stages. But we have a project to create a, a Hindu-friendly AI, our own Hindu-friendly AI. And what we would like to do is train this AI, not on Wikipedia, but on Vedic knowledge shastras, Vedic texts, on the uh, works of uh, the great thinkers, uh, so it will be uh, a, a sort of like the chat G kind of a thing, a kind of a Hindu chat GPT sort of thing. So when you ask a question, it'll give you the kind of answer that a spiritual leaders would give you. So you can, if the Arabs can gamify AI for Arabic language and their ideology, and the Chinese can gamify it for their ideology, we should do it for us rather than complaining. That's what I'm here for. And, and, and I'm going back to uh, India to raise more awareness and raise more and more you know, funding and all that for this project, because I would like a certain portion of our AI engineering workforce to be moved into this direction where we can create our own ethos in an AI system. Right. Well, thank you. Um, thank you, Vinod. Thank you, Rajiv, for your excellent uh, contribution and answering the questions. Um, I think uh, the concept of a Hindu-friendly AI will really give the wokists some trouble, uh, which, is, which, is, uh, something of a, which is exactly what we, we need to do. I, I, mean, I think during your contribution, you've made the point of what the risks are, what the dangers are, but also what the fight back against this mm. is likely to be. In my view, one of, the, one of the biggest problems we face in society right now is this sort of cancel culture mm. where if you don't agree with what I believe, mm. you don't even get the chance yeah. to put your point of view. That is unacceptable and has got to be called out for what it is, which is totalitarianism um, and preventing both in our universities, uh, our academic institutions generally, but also our parliaments and around the world. The, the, the thought of only one view, only one view is correct. Now, I always have the view that my view is correct, but we always have to listen to the alternative views because if you don't, you, you condition yourself to, to failure. So thank you for your contribution. Keep, keep up the good work, and I hope it won't be another three or four years before you can come back uh, and speak to us again uh, after you've no doubt written another half a dozen worldwide <laughs> bestsellers and developed this wonderful new AI. Uh, but if we've got the AI, possibly won't need you. Yes. We, we just pump it into the system and it'll, it'll spurt out your speech for us. Right. Anyway, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for your interaction.